Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Elisha is a new thought speaker and trainer. His main focus right now is to create new systems of thinking, which are much needed as we reinvent ourselves and our society in these changing times. He's chosen as a title, Pathology to Mythology, Wrong is Right, a very intriguing title. Elisha, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. Thanks. It's great to be back. Thank you. So do you want to start with telling us about pathology to mythology, or do you want to just dive right into your life? Uh, you know, I think that the best place to begin is for me just to tell a little bit of my story, and then that'll give us context for everything else after that. Oh, that's good. I am currently 37. If you had met me when I was 18 to 20-something, you would have met a very, very different person. I started struggling with pretty severe depression when I was about nine, and that really escalated over the course of my development to where by my late teens and early adulthood, I was headed towards a full psychotic break, a few suicide attempts. I had spent some time in psychiatric care and was living with a pile of diagnoses. I was everything from schizoaffective to clinically depressed to having generalized anxiety and panic attacks. And, you know, the list went on and on and on and on. And there was a point in my life where I was truly identified with all of those labels. And that that story of who I was and that there was these parts of me that were dysfunctional, that were pathologies, that didn't allow me to function in the world or that kept me separate or feeling broken. That identifying with those labels in a way really kept me in that story and really in a sense perpetuated the experience that I was in. There's a point where I start to come out of a really dark experience that lasted a number of years. I make an attempt to try college for the first time I'm in an anthropology class, and I have a professor by the name of Dr. John Baker. He, in one of his classes, was talking about the anthropological viewpoint or the model of sort of the shaman's journey, and that, you know, looking across many cultures across time and across the globe, there is this pattern of an individual who rises up in a community. It usually starts in their late childhood, early adulthood, that some strange behavior or strange experiences start to happen that point them out as being someone who's different. That instead of being told that those things are wrong or broken or need to be fixed, the person is then singled out to be sort of trained and elevated to lean into those differences. In the shamanic journey, if you will, oftentimes that person in a sense is brought into the underworld or sort of pulled apart mentally or spiritually and then reassembled. And in the reassembly, they're sort of reborn as a new person and there's new power in, in their new identity. That storyline, that archetypal journey, that mythos, that idea kind of that he was sharing really, really resonated with the journey that I had been through and that depression and suicide attempts and psychosis and, you know, some of the experiences that I had really did pull me apart and fracture the person that I was previously. And in the process, then 
kind of came back together as a new person. And that new person had a completely different seeking and a deeper longing. It was that person who then sought out to become a minister, who sought out to study with Jean Houston, who sought out, who was the one who started to kind of beckon me and call me forward and say, come be me. And it was the shift in this sort of context of there's something wrong with me to perhaps there's something uniquely right with me. There was this point in my life where I had this sort of flip in story where it was, you know, maybe I'm not schizoaffective, but I have some sort of shamanic ability. Perhaps I don't suffer from panic attacks and bipolar and severe anxiety. Perhaps I'm a channel for energy and it's something that I need to learn how to harness and use as opposed to be overcome by. Perhaps it's not depression, but an ability to go so far inside of myself that I can actually create entire worlds inside of my own mind. And it was this sort of flip in context that all the things that seemed to be broken were actually sort of the, the missing pieces or the keys to my gifts, to my genius. I'll give one more specific example. I had debilitating stage fright for most of my life. Anytime in school, from elementary school all the way through all of my attempts at college, which I've had many, I failed or really struggled to get through school because I had such an inability to speak in front of people. And that anytime I go in front of a room and have to give a presentation or a report, it would be one of the most excruciating and difficult things that would lead me almost into panic attacks. That I would always be that student sitting in the back of the classroom just sweating and turning red and getting a stomach ache and turning myself into knots and waiting to go absolutely last because for some reason we love to torture ourselves. And I would just freeze with the ability to, at the thought of even speaking in front of people. A teacher of mine along the way taught me at some point that the body, the physical body, the rush of adrenaline, the body doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. If we can, can recontextualize this fear of speaking into an excitement to speaking, an excitement to speak, that it's just that turn in context that can unlock something. It was in that turn of context that I actually began to become a public speaker. And it became this new story that whenever I feel that sort of burning anxiety starting to happen in my body before I go on stage, I tell myself, oh, this is the energy of my talk. These are the words that want to come out. And that as soon as I open my mouth and begin speaking, all of that uncomfortable energy goes away because it has somewhere to go. And when I used to hold it in and not allow myself to speak, that energy turned inward and it turned into a panic attack as opposed to a lecture or a discourse or a prayer or something that I'm teaching or facilitating. And again, it was all about a flip in context from this idea that there was something wrong or broken that I was incapable of doing which was actually sort of the, the hidden gift that I had that I didn't know that I had, but it had to be released as opposed to be held inside. Mm. Well, I had a, just to share with you, I had an experience of that when I was working in the corporate world and I became so sick, so uncomfortable, itching in my own body that I, my size six shoe would be, I'd have to wear a size 10. And eventually it flipped and I left the corporate world and I found that out of that came highly intuitive shamanic abilities to work with people. So I understand your, your journey. It's great. You know, I really believe that on a, on a really, 
on a really deep level that, you know, each one of us is the universe in miniature. You know, I've heard Gene Houston say that a million times. You are the universe in miniature. And in that, it's all the powers of creation, all of possibility is being funneled through each one of us as an individual. And I think that, you know, the point, if you will, of being human, in my opinion, is to be a unique place where the universe is showing up. Unfortunately, or interestingly, or however we want to frame this, we live in a world that oddly rewards sameness and rewards, in a sense, a system that keeps the uniqueness and the, the brilliance and the genius of the individual from really being able to, to, to be unleashed. And I think that that is why we have a need for for a new norm in the world, for a new normal. You know, I feel like we're seeing the breakdown of these systems that have said that there are certain ways of doing and being that all people are expected to participate in and that this sort of has created this stratus where people aren't living in their joy, people aren't thriving, people aren't living in their bliss because the, the world that we're living in, the normal that we've cultivated up until now, is not set up to lift up the individuals so that we all work in this kind of beautiful symbiosis. My last time with you, Jane, we talked a little bit about reinventing organizations, I think, and, and Frederick Lalo's work, but that's the difference between, you know, in spiral dynamics to like first tier and second tier paradigms that are, that are sort of battling or shifting or trying to emerge right now is that we aren't machines, we're not mechanized pieces, you know, that, we, that people aren't cogs in a wheel, that people are unique individual essences that need to be cultivated. Much of the world that we live in, whether it's militaries or churches or businesses or corporations, oftentimes just think of people as, as parts of an organized mechanism, you know, of society or of the corporation or of the military. And we want to, I want to live in a world where we actually look for the unique, the unique genius that is actually available in each person, but it actually requires us to cultivate an environment that really celebrates finding who we are and asking the deep questions of ourselves and looking for our gifts and our geniuses and our the things that we have to offer, as opposed to looking for how it is that we can fit in or be as normative or unnoticed as possible. So just can you relate, just to back up a little bit, uh, the pathology to mythology, can you relate what you just said to mythologizing our lives? Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of my, you know, and as I referenced earlier, just that sort of flip in context for myself, that this sort of idea of a shaman's journey, if you will, just as a sort of archetypal or anthropological structure is something that really reflected in me that really shifted the context of a story that I was telling myself that I had mental illness and that it was sort of finding a, a bigger storyline, finding an idea that was greater than myself, that had a spin on what I was already experiencing that gave it a completely new meaning, changes the landscape 100%, right? And I really believe that it's that our collective consciousness, the, all the sort of the, the collective thoughts of all humans, the history that we've created, the sort of shared ideas and agreements that we all have about reality, that in that is a great sort of field of mythology. And it's our religions, it's the great storylines, it's all of the movies, it's the culture that we live in. And 
I really believe that we are in a time of great story change that sort of the great storylines that have built the world around us are clearly beginning to break down that it's time for us to begin to engage in becoming the characters or the sort of archetypes that participate in new stories and so for me it was changing from i'm someone who's mentally ill who doesn't have anything to offer the world to i have a unique set of skills i have a unique sort of lens a unique way of seeing the world that gives me the ability to offer a perspective and it's just a perspective. But if we recognize that what we, there's a, a great experiment that's been replicated over and over and over again, where, you know, if maybe you have a, a bunch of pennies in a jar or you have people at a rodeo trying to guess the weight of an ox or something like that. If every single person could guess and get the, get the number wrong, how many pennies are in this jar? How much does this ox weigh? But if you take all of the individual's answers and total them up and average them out almost every time you get the number the accurate number the answer really yes <laughs> and you can look up this research it's been done over and over and over again in a number of different forms there's something really magical to recognizing that our collective wisdom that the unique perspective that each person has to offer can bring us to a higher perspective, even if every one of us is a little bit wrong, even if every one of our lens or way of seeing the world is a little bit skewed in our own personal direction, if we can each really look clearly and ask ourselves what we have to offer and build a world where we, we want to engage that way, that there's something in our collective that is beyond what any one of us has to offer but it's about the unique perspective of each person looking in, and it takes all the perspectives to get to the right answer. You know, most people look for friends that are like-minded, look for people that look the same, look for sameness in, in all our relationships, and we spend our life trying to get sameness. And so what you're saying, I mean, how many of us have felt, oh, I'm so different. I stick out like a sore thumb or I, I don't fit in. And what you're saying is fitting in is the booby prize or we mm -hmm. should really value variety and uniqueness and diversity rather than looking for sameness. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, um, Jane, you know, synthesis is my word. You know, I'm all about how can we look at two ideas, two people, two circumstances and things that seemingly that seem to be opposing or different from each other and overlap them and put them next to each other and look at them from as many angles as possible and see how they might be the same thing, how they might have something related to each other. And then in that, these new ideas emerge. I think, again, I think I shared this last time we, we had a conversation, Jane, but, you know, I, I really love this idea of the law of, the law of synthesis, which says that when two seemingly opposing ideas are brought together, a third higher idea can be created that does not compromise either of the original two. To me, that is the goal of 
having a conversation with someone who's different than me. That's the goal of studying multiple disciplines. That's the goal of trying to seek out and find out the uniqueness and taking a story that, uh, or an event or something that we think is wrong with ourselves, and then pairing it with, with another bigger idea or a mythology or a storyline that turns that idea into something completely different that doesn't negate what happened and that doesn't change the facts but drastically changes the impact, the outcome, the context, the, the sort of patterns of thought and experiences that then come out of the memories of that. Let me go back to your personal story, because you have, you've had a learning disability because all your life you've seen double, right? Yeah. So from a very young age, it was very clear to my parents that I was seeing differently. My coordination was a little off, especially when it came to sports, anything involving a ball, baseball, or soccer, anything like that. I seemed to be very uncoordinated. You know, it's funny, when, when something is normal to you, you don't know that it's not normal to other people. Because I remember being, you know, 11 or 12 and getting my eyes actually checked, maybe a little bit younger, but getting my eyes checked for the first time. And you know, the doctor doing this eye test and, and he's, he brought his finger next to my eyes and said, okay, tell me when it turns into two fingers or when it goes back to one. And at every level, he pulled his finger, he moved his hand around and I said, well, I see two, I see two, I see two, I see two. And I remember my mom saying, well, how come you never told us that you see two of everything? I was like, well, how do I know that you don't? You know, I, did, I had no idea that I should even tell you that I see the world differently than you do because I had no idea. So in my book, iYoga, the way we see literally affects how we think. And so by seeing double your entire life, you're always synthesizing and pulling two disparate things together to make them one, even yeah. though you're always seeing double. Yeah, pretty much my entire life has been this game of sort of looking at what appears to be two things or one thing that's kind of in two different places and really getting that they're one thing. And I remember when, you know, coming to some different spiritual traditions that I've experienced in my life and contemplating ideas of quantum physics. And, you know, there's things like that that just sort of make complete and total sense to my mind that two particles of light could be in two different places at the same time or that all of reality could be actually one thing happening. You know, that there's these, these sort of leaps that, that I think others might need to take that just don't, that are just the nature of how I see the universe, you know? And I think that that's why synthesis is such a big word for me because I'm always looking at overlapping worlds that appear to be somewhat different, but are actually the same thing. So a, a doctor, an a optometrist would want to fix your way of seeing so that you could see one thing instead of two. And I'm looking at that going, oh, that's not a pathology. That's a mythologizing way of looking at the world so that you can bring together or synthesize things that are, uh, are opposites. Mm -hmm. If each one of us is the universe re-expressing itself in just a slightly different way, it's almost like every single one of us is this kind of beautiful and random configuration of elements 
through which to perceive the universe. And that unique configuration is gonna create a particular viewpoint. It's gonna create a particular experience that has never happened before. And that's each one of us. I think that perhaps we all actually see the universe a little bit differently, but we just all think that everyone sees it the same as we do because why would we think anything different? The more that we begin to explore the uniqueness of each person, there's radical and beautiful gifts that want to be expressed through each person's uniqueness. Can you, you know, tell some stories about that you've, you've worked yeah, with? Yeah, I was going to tell you, I, I worked with children with autism for many years, and my mom has for decades at this point. The thing that I've seen over and over and over again is brilliant, wildly skilled individuals that have capacities that are almost magical, that have the ability to, to work with numbers in a way that that almost seems greater than a computer. You know, kids with memories that remember every single thing that happened on every date at any, any point in time. Kids with remarkable music abilities. I remember reading an article many years ago about a woman, I wish I could remember her name right now. She is a, woman, a person with autism and she has what would be considered a severe case. And she's mostly nonverbal, really doesn't communicate much at all in a way that most of us would recognize as communication. But one day, this individual began to write birthday cards, and she was able to write. She wanted to make birthday cards for everyone that she'd ever met and everyone that they'd ever, that they knew. And so all of her, uh, you know, workers and teachers and family members, she started making these birthday cards for it turns out that years later, she makes something like 10,000 personalized birthday cards a year that she sends out. And there's thousands of people across the United States that the only birthday card they receive every year is from this one person. This is her joy, it is her bliss, it is her gift, and it is her purpose. If we expect her to be able to stand in line, raise her hand, go to the grocery store, do all the things that the rest of us think are normal, and we try to force her to learn how to do those things, she's, she struggles and she's very unhappy. But if we create a world that supports her as she is, thousands of people get this uplifting gift once a year that some of them desperately need. Mm. If we look at her and call her disabled or think that there's something wrong with her, we miss the beauty of her uniqueness. We miss the beauty of her genius. We miss the beauty of the love that she has to give. I really believe that there's something that special in every single person, in every single one of us. But at this point, there is over 7 billion of us on this planet. And we're rising to a new complexity as an organism or as a, as a communal organism, as a species, as a human species. I really believe we're moving to become, in a sense, a communal organism. I think that that's the next phase of our neurological evolution is that there's some sort of greater sense of connection that awakens between us where almost like a, like a human brain, all of the cells are basically the same shape. They're all brain cells 
but they hold certain areas of function. They sold, hold certain ideas. You know, every cell of the body is a cell of the body, but every cell becomes a unique expression that supports the whole body. And what if we thought of the human family as the cells and the organs of a mind-body system that is our collective, that is the planet, to begin to build a mythos, a storyline that says each one of our uniqueness is vital to the survival of our collective. It reminds me of um, Teilhard de Chardin talks about the noosphere, which is the new mental brain of the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call it the, the thoughtmosphere is my word. <laughs> <laughs> right it's kind of the same thing. Um, you know, but I think that it's the sort of, you know, every one of us on some level, and we're just barely beginning to understand this, you know, we're starting to measure through the HeartMath Institute and things like that, that, you know, your heart has a magnetic field that goes 20 something feet around your body just from your heart beating that our, our brains are not necessarily, our mind is not necessarily just inside of our, of our skull. Our field of thought is something that exists, I believe, more around us than in us. And that if we think about each one of us as sort of a little projector of consciousness, a little projector of thought, a little projector of reality, then it's where we all overlap that that sort of noosphere, that thoughtmosphere, the, the, the realm of the archetypes, the mythos, that's where all of that then emerges, which is the patterns and the structures that emerge from our collective consciousness. If we're all trying to fit into preordained ways of being, we're not participating in evolution. We're participating in keeping things as they are. And I know that we humans struggle to be comfortable with change and difference on some, at some times. You know, we, we really like to be comfortable. Comfortability likes sameness. Comfortability doesn't like change. The more we can be willing to be uncomfortable and wiggle into ourselves and really start to look at the pieces of us that maybe we think might be wrong with us or maybe be our pathologies or maybe be our mental or physical illnesses or our struggles. In the, the sort of mythos of Dean Houston and, and Joseph Campbell with the hero's journey, there's almost always a dragon or a guardian or some great task that has to be overcome in order to get the treasure or the the great boon or the reward or whatever's on the other side of that sort of guardian. But there's almost always a guardian at the gate. Every one of us has our demons and our dragons, but I believe that they're there to protect our gifts until we're ready, to protect our gifts from the world. It's not about overcoming or defeating those dragons and demons, but it's about integrating them into ourselves, about making friends with them, about learning how to work with them. If we ever want to talk about healing, I really believe that all healing is about integration, that all healing is about the sort of synthesis of the self into one thing and about looking for the parts of ourselves that seem to be separate, the parts of ourselves that seem to be wrong, the parts of ourselves that we really don't want to look at and be willing to say, wait a minute, this is part of me. This too is part of me. And when we embrace all of ourselves, when we embrace our wholeness, we unlock who we are. But like the collective, each one of us has to engage all of the perspectives that exist within us. We live in a world that really wants to shame and blame us for the parts of us that are wrong. 
the parts of us that don't fit in and the parts of us that are different and the parts of us that think outside of collective agreement. If we really want to heal ourselves first, we have to pick up those puzzle pieces we haven't wanted to look at and be willing to put them into the picture and recognize that they're part of us. And that when we embrace those things, that's what allows us to move into the realm of excellence and genius, to move into thriving, to move out of fear and start to be moved by vision, start to be moved by excitement, by new energy. So can you relate that then to as we um, are pausing with this pandemic and, and we're looking for a way to reinvent ourselves to, can you relate what you've been saying to that? Yeah, well, again, you know, it's all about the context. It's if we look at something and call it wrong, that's it. That's saying it's a pathology. That's we're pathologizing something. If we look at something and look for the possibility, if we look for the bigger storyline, that we can start to mythologize. If we can start to look at something, if, if we, and I know I do, and we maybe we all don't, but I personally believe that evolution is a force for expansion in the universe, that it, there's some law of evolution that reaches towards greater complexity, that reaches towards greater possibility. And I believe that every crisis, from what I understand of prehistoric biology, if you will, it's always been moments of crisis that lead to leaps in evolution. We're moving through a great collective moment of crisis on many levels, globally, societally, within this nation, many of us within ourselves and our own families. Like we are going through a great moment of crisis right now. We can either be overcome by that story or we can become the ones who write a new one using these circumstances. So transform into a butterfly or revert to mush and die. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. You know, and, and I think that we are always at choice with how we perceive something. We're not always at choice about the circumstances. The world happens to us. There are all kinds of conditions that we cannot escape. But we do have the ability to put on a different perspective, to ask different questions, to think or imagine our way to a new place. And so as we look at things like COVID and this sort of great time of restructuring where everything seems to be changing or in a great realm of unknown, that we must be willing to tell ourselves a story that empowers us to move through it. If I tell myself that COVID-19 is some government conspiracy and, you know, that there's you know, all that where this is some weaponized, you know, media thing, you know, that's going to lead me to think and act and choose and believe and participate in a certain version of the world. If I believe that COVID-19 is a wake-up call from Mother Earth that is trying to bring the burning of the rainforests and the fevered climate and the flooding of the oceans with toxins, if we see this as a metaphor where the Mother Earth is bringing that lack of awareness into our bodies so that we can see what we've been doing to the Earth, well, then there's a deep and profound metaphor right there that's going to then affect how we interact with what's happening. If we engage in a mythos that says our collective good is what's most important, that's going to 
affect how people act or proceed when they go into the world, what precautions they think they do or don't need to take. So your point of view about anything determines how it gets projected out and what, what, what world we create from our projection. Absolutely. And I think that it's, I see it as sort of, in a sense, uh, raining down upon us from all directions and also emitting from us all the time. That, and that's sort of this, these, there's layers of context, right? There's the sort of collective thought of the storylines and the histories and all the different parties and camps and movements of thought that are happening all around us. And these are all these layers of thought that are coming at us from every direction. And then each one of us has the ability to fine tune what it is that we're looking at, what we're allowing into our minds, what we're perceiving, and if we can, I believe that if we can choose to always look for possibility, and I'm not necessarily a positive thinking person. I think that there's a whole sort of a new age sort of philosophy out there that tells us we'll just think positive and don't have bad thoughts and, you know, think about nice, good things and everything's going to be all right. And that's not necessarily my philosophy. I really consider myself a person who wants to look at possibilities that it's not about trying to think positive and not think bad thoughts, because I think that we have to look at the negative things. We have to look at what's not working. We have to look at what's broken. We have to look at things that hurt and feel bad in order to actually understand them. But if we can look at them from a place of looking for possible storylines, possible outcomes, possible deeper meanings, possible context, possible um, reasons for, you know, it's like if we can live in the realm of the imagination and think around things, and look at them from as many different angles as possible, then we begin to look for a bigger picture. So that's where you get this wrong is right. If you look at what's wrong, to look at possibilities of what could be right about it. Is that what mm -hmm. you're... Yeah, and what, and what is it that could come from this? In my own personal life and in so much the people that I do one-on-one you know, -on -one work with of any kind, and many of the people who have stories I know, and all of us have these experiences in our lives where many times it's the darkest, most negative and painful and difficult things that really transform us and bring us to our greater good in the end. I'm always looking for that, even in our collective situations, even when great and terrible things happen in the world. I often wonder what good could come of this in the, in the end. What other lines of possibility might be emerging because of this moment of change, because of this shift that just happened? Maybe there's a new story that's wanting to emerge. Let's look for it. Let's see what it is. Because if enough of us buy into a new story, guess what? That's what we start to build. That's what we start to create. That's what we start to engage and participate in. Yes. Hmm. <sighs> <laughs> Thoughts sort of come in waves, you know? Right. We're waiting for the second wave. <laughs> Okay, so is there any sort of culminating, synthesizing thought that you have to pull this all together for people? Well, I sure hope so. I think the biggest thing right now is to invite anyone who's hearing this to begin to look out at the world at large and all the things that we think are going wrong. Also to take a look in the mirror or take a look within and look at ourselves really deeply and look at what's not 
been working or what parts of ourselves we've been ashamed of or that we've been hiding or that we've been afraid to look at and begin to just simply ask the questions of what other story might be happening here? What other possible idea might be trying to be expressed? What other context might there be? Because there's not just one version of what's happening. It's up to each one of us to really begin to look for the truth in the world and in ourselves, to look for what great changes are upon us or what changes could be made so that we can begin to move in the direction of first building selves that work and then building a society that works and then building a world that works. Because we are in a time of great transition and I really believe that the storylines, the archetypes, the ways of doing and being, the belief systems that have built the world for the last, I'd say, two to 10,000 years, really, on, on a few different levels, that those storylines are, that the curtain on the play is coming to a close and that there's a new story that is ready to be acted out and that we're in a time of great transition and that we need new stories, we need new perspectives, we need new ways of looking at ourselves, and we need to begin to open up to the uniqueness and the power and the potential and the individuality that lives in each person because we have, we have issues in front of us in the next century that are gonna take whole new ways of thinking in order to even attempt to solve the problems because we cannot solve problem at the level that it was created. We must rise to a new level of thinking in order to create new solutions. And we're moving into a world that needs new solutions in almost every area of how we do and how we be on this planet and how we interact and how we create and how we, and what, what we are doing here needs a great looking at. And I think that now is the time and that if we each look at ourselves and really look deeply and are willing to start looking for new storylines that we then collectively start to build a new story altogether. Hmm. So we're constantly looking for people that don't fit in <laughs> to create a new reality. Yeah. If you know, if you've been struggling to step in line, step out all the way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So any last minute thoughts before we close? I feel pretty good. I feel like I feel like we've talked around this pretty well at this point. Great. Well, Elisha, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your wisdom and your uniqueness. Well, thanks for having me, Jane. You know, I, I love our conversations. And so thanks again for having me here. Yeah, we never know where they're going to take us. Mm -mm. It's a different, it's a new possibility every time. So you don't miss any of our shows, make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.